Mark 15, verses 16 through 24. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25 to 39. Verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, the ma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. This is God's word. Well, at the start here, uh, I want to have a brief conversation uh, with the children who are here. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I wonder if your mom and dad ever tell you stories about things that they did when they were younger. Do they ever do that? They ever tell you stories? I wonder if when they tell you those kind of stories, you say, no, I've heard that story before, Dad. You're telling me that story again. I had a, uh, a story that my dad would tell me a lot. It's, it's uh, it's not a very important story, but it's a memorable story. My dad was a house painter. He, he would climb up houses and stand on the roof, and he would paint the high wood parts of the house, okay? Uh, and one day, he was standing up on the top of this house, 
painting, and he had a, a caulking gun in his hand. Now, a caulking gun's not a gun. It just squeezes out some caulk into some cracks, makes it look nice before you paint it, all right? And while he's holding this caulking gun up on a roof, a helicopter came and hovered right above him. And there was a soldier in the helicopter with a gun. My dad was, was so afraid, he didn't realize that the President of the United States was driving through the neighborhood with all of his cars. And this helicopter was to go in front of the cars to make sure everything was safe. So the soldier looks at my dad, my dad looks at the soldier, he's holding the caulking gun, and then the soldier smiles, gives him a thumbs up, and the helicopter goes away. It's not an important story. It's a memorable story. It's the kind of story parents might tell their children. You know, in in the Bible story that Lucy and Timothy just read, Lucy read this one verse. Listen to it again. It's from Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So, so this man, Simon, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus, he, maybe he's just on his way to work, and as he's coming into town, Jesus is being led out to be killed. Can you guys picture that? Can you picture what's happening? Simon doesn't know what's happening. John's gospel tells us that Jesus carried his own cross at the start, but he must have been too tired. He was beaten. And so this man, Simon, was grabbed and said, you carry the cross. And I think that probably Simon told his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, about this story. You know why I think that? Because why in the world are these two guys mentioned? Does anybody know who Alexander and Rufus are? We don't know anything else about them. But I think it must have been that when Mark wrote this gospel, that Alexander and Rufus were in the church, and they could go find these guys, and they could ask them, hey, tell us that story that your dad told you about how he carried the cross for Jesus. You know, I I wonder what Alexander and Rufus thought about what they heard from their dad. I, I wonder if they understood what Jesus was coming to do when he died on that cross. And I wonder if Alexander and Rufus decided that they were going to believe in Jesus and follow him as well. You know, that's not a decision that Simon could make for his sons. That was going to be a decision that they would have to make for themselves. Kids, I don't know what you think about church uh, I'm sure you're, you're here in part because your parents brought you here, right? Maybe you think it's a little bit boring sometimes. That's okay. But I want you to understand that this story that we're talking about tonight is a story that you can understand about what Jesus came to do. And it's a story that you can believe, just like Alexander and Rufus could have believed it. It's my prayer for you this evening as you listen even as we walk through the text, that you'll think about those two boys, those sons of Simon, and what they learned about Jesus. 
and that you will decide, hopefully like they did, to believe in him and to follow him. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for all of us this evening that you would help us to understand what you came to do and that you would help us to believe it. I pray that you would bless these children with faith, for I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a transition for my family to Singapore. Uh, One of the things for me the last two weeks is I'm learning to travel around this wonderful island using buses and MRTs and taxis. Uh, I love them all, uh, mainly because I can get out of the uh, hot into the air conditioning. So I look forward to any opportunity to ride the transportation system. Uh, But I did have an experience just last Friday. I I was leaving church here, and I had called a a taxi. And because of the construction that is happening right out front, the the taxi couldn't see where to turn into the the church. He missed the entrance. And so he had to slow down, uh, and he was looking for me, and, and I was looking for him. Well, there was a bus that pulled behind the taxi, and this bus driver must have been in a, in a terrible hurry because he, he honked at the taxi driver, not, not once, not twice, not ten times, but over and over again, beep, 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 over and over. I felt really bad for the taxi driver, and, and I got into the taxi, uh, and, and the taxi driver was very upset. He said, why did the bus driver honk at me so many times? Does he think that I'm a bad driver? I'm not a bad driver. I tried to console him. I tried to encourage him. I said, it's not your fault. I'm sorry that happened. But the rest of the ride, we talk about the story over and over and over again. He he couldn't let it go. He kept saying, does he think I'm a bad taxi driver? I could understand what the man was feeling. He felt disrespected. He felt like the, the, the bus driver hadn't given him the respect that he deserved. And so he felt in some level humiliated and shameful. I guess in Asian culture, we would say that he lost face. That was a phrase that I had to learn when I first moved to China. Uh, I would think I was at a restaurant with a friend. I was trying to buy him dinner. He was trying to buy me dinner. I didn't understand how this works. And so finally he said to me, uh, Give me a little face. Now, now I, I knew what the words meant, but, but they didn't compute to me. Give me a little face. What does that mean? Later on, I was playing basketball, and it was a, it was a good basketball game. It was very competitive, and there were, there were two guys in particular that were really competing with each other. But at some point, things turned bad. They, they turned and wanted to fight each other. We, we had to help separate them. And, and I turned to my friend and I, I said, why are those two guys trying to fight with each other? What, what, why, what made that one guy so angry? He said to me, because he, he lost face. There it was again. I hadn't understand what this meant. Face really matters to us as human beings doesn't it? We can endure a lot of things. We we can endure setbacks at work, in our career. We can endure physical hardships. We can endure conflict. But when we are disrespected, we cannot abide that. You can criticize me. 
You can challenge me. I'm okay. But don't mock me. That is something that I simply can't handle. It strikes too close to my sense of self. It calls into question who I am, my worth and my value as a person. I wonder what makes you feel disrespected. When do you feel humiliated? When do you feel shameful? Let's change this a bit and think about a different question. What about God? In so very many ways, God is not like us, right? He doesn't struggle with his identity as we do. He's the most happy of beings without any needs at all. So surely we cannot speak of God losing face or feeling shame. But what of disrespect? Will God allow himself to be mocked? Students of the Bible might immediately think that there's, there's a verse that answers that question, right? In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Which is to say that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. You and I cannot live for ourselves. We, we cannot ignore the law of our Creator. Uh, we cannot hide our secret sins and, and go along putting on a, a, a nice veneer for other people and then get to the end and say, God, let me into your eternal kingdom. Overlook all of that. No, surely the judge of the universe must do right. God will not be mocked. Surely he will not endure that kind of disrespect. And yet, this evening, on this good Friday, as we look at Mark 15, that Lucy and Timothy read, what, what do we have? You know, the book of Mark is written to show the divine identity of the man, Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Remember the voice from heaven at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Remember the voice of the opponents, the Pharisees who said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Remember the voice of his disciples. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? The book of Mark triumphantly proclaims this man Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet the text before us, how does it portray him? Did you hear the words? Verse 20. And when they had mocked him. Verse 29. Those who passed by derided him. Verse 31. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him. Verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Will God be mocked? Jesus Christ certainly was. Is he God then? And for you and I, why believe and follow a man whose life on the earth ended in this sort of a way, this shameful sort of a way? These are the questions that we want to consider over the next few minutes. The main idea, I think, of our text is that understanding the death of Jesus turns mockery into belief. Understanding the death of Jesus turns mockery into belief. And we'll consider that in two points. Number one, Jesus is mocked, verse 16 to 32. 
And number two, Jesus is believed, verse 34 to 37. So let's dive into the text. Number one, Jesus is mocked. We're picking up the account here after the, the trial of Jesus, which was an unjust trial, of course. The, the chief priests have trumped up charges against him and, and pushed Pilate into a corner by stirring up the crowds to demand that he is crucified. Pilate knows he's innocent, but he's a man committed to his job security. So in the end, he delivers Jesus over to the soldiers. And what we have here is an account then of how Jesus was killed. And I want you to notice how odd an account it is in many respects. We know this is the core of Christianity, right? The the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ. It's what we talk about. It's what we were singing about. We read books about it. And yet in the text, only four words. Look at verse 24 there. And they crucified him. Four words. No details. It moves on then to how they, post-execution, distributed his remains. And the details surrounding it are similarly like a, a police report. Sparse details. Verse 21, someone to help carry the cross as transportation. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, 22. That's the location. Verse 23, they offered him wine, the last rites of the prisoner. It was the third hour, verse 25. It's the time of execution. No wasted words, no adjectives, just the facts. But on the other hand, what Mark decides to spend his ink on is something completely different than the event itself. Did you notice that? The the way everyone in the scene responded to Jesus, the way that they mocked him. It's quite striking to me. I want want us to look at this. Five different mockings, okay? Number one, the soldiers, verse 16 and following. They led him away. This must have been kind of a a cruel sport to them. They gather the whole battalion together. A condemned criminal is going to die, so they want to have their sadistic fun with him. We can assume that being a conquering power over a population that despises you would would create animosity on both sides. So the soldiers have some pent-up anger and frustration here. They're going to take out on Jesus. And what they do here is mock the idea that this pathetic person in front of them could be a king. So what do they do? They, they kind of have a, a mock coronation for him. Verse 17 to 19, they, they put a purple cloak, crown of thorns. They give him a reed as a scepter. They bow down and hail him, king of the Jews. And then in verses 19 and 20, they have the anti-coronation. They strike him, they spit on him, and they derobe him. The soldiers here are a picture of human cruelty, aren't they? Left to themselves, this is how human beings treat one another. We tend to assume the worst about the other. And when push comes to shove... We are willing to abuse our fellow man made in God's image. Sometimes we've been the abuser. Other times we've been the passive bystander. From the pictures that we get from war-torn places like Ukraine to the way we have the tendency to look the other way when the person right in front of us needs some help. 
and we don't offer it. When we look at the soldiers, we should think about just how far we all are from the standard of loving others as ourselves. But there's a second mocker here, and that's Pontius Pilate, down in verse 26. His name is not listed in our text. It just says the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. But it's Pilate who had that written. A plaque would be nailed above the criminal to name the offense. It might say thief or, or murderer, traitor. But the charge against Jesus that they had brought was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So that's what he writes. And Pilate is getting back at the religious leaders, right? He feels bitter that they trapped him and pushed him into a corner and forced him to release Barabbas. So he gets his revenge here by writing words that would have made them angry. The king of the Jews. Christians believe that he spoke truer than he knew. But think about the unrighteousness of the man Pilate. He perverts justice for personal gain and then in revenge tries to get back at his opponents in the process. You and I do this too, don't we? We're so easily angered, so easily embittered. We look for little ways to get revenge on people when we feel wronged. And at our core, we are willing to shift the blame for the things that we have done to another person. Can you believe what that person did to me? Yes, I'm angry, but But look what that other person did. When you think of Pilate, think about the way we as humans shift the blame for our sins to other people. A third mocker we can see in the text is the passers-by, verse 29. Rome crucified criminals along roadways. It was a way to deter other people from rebelling or doing things wrong. Mark reports that the general sentiment here of the people as derision. It's a word that just means ridicule or mockery. They're wagging their heads and saying, Aha, now we know he's an imposter. You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. We know that Jesus uttered these words talking about the temple of his body. And he would be vindicated just two days later. It's always surprised me how confident human beings can be in their own opinions about God. So confident. God would not judge me. God would not be like that. When we think of the passerbys here, we should think about the blindness of human reason and how wrong we are when we come to our own conclusions about God. There's a fourth mocker here, fourth group of mockers, the chief priests and the scribes, verse 31. They say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. There's great irony and prophetic truth in their words. If Christ wanted to save others, he couldn't come down from the cross and save himself. Think about Jesus as he hears these words, knowing that he could prove them wrong in a moment. Why not prove them wrong? Why why take their mockery, these men who care only about themselves? Well, the irony is that their words are true because he intended to save others. He could not save himself. 
Now we know from earlier up in the chapter what motivated the chief priests. We're told in chapter 15, verse 10, that it was out of envy that they handed over Jesus. They envied his popularity with the crowds. They feared the way it threatened their position. Friends, envy is a terrible sin. It causes us to do terrible things. When you and I look at another person and we think, ah, I wish I had what they have. I should have that. What we're actually saying is that God has not done right by us. He's not given us what we deserve. We cannot accept our lot in life. When you think about the chief priests, think about the envy in our own hearts. And then fifth and finally, we have the criminals on either side that mocked him. They're the final entrant in this logbook of those who mocked. Other Gospels tells us that one of the two criminals changes his mind before the end, but at the start, both revile him. The word revile means to speak abusively. Uh, These men are dying because of something they did that was wrong, but Jesus has done nothing wrong. Think about the hypocrisy of it for them to speak abusively of him. You and I are hypocrites too, right? We're so quick to point out the sin in other people, so slow to notice it in ourselves. Well, taken together, what what do you make of this chorus of mockery? Mark has assembled them for us because I think he wants to make a point. He wants to give us a picture, a portrait of humanity, what we are really like if you and I are honest. Like the soldiers, we're cruel. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Like Pilate, we don't own our own sin. We prefer to shift the blame to others. Like the passers-by, we are confident and yet blind. Like the chief priests, we are driven by envy in our personal relationships. And in the end, we are hypocrites who sit in judgment on others. In all of it, we mock the God who made us, the one to whom we owe honor and glory. Now, maybe you think that's a little bit extreme. Maybe you say, Mark, it just seems like too dark a picture. I don't feel like I'm that way. The culture around us certainly doesn't agree. I've talked to a few taxi drivers this week who assure me that they're good people because they live and let live. That's their definition of righteousness. Is that the standard? Listen to the way Peter Lightheart describes this text. Roman soldiers mocked Jesus inside their military headquarters. Random passers-by mocked Jesus as he hangs between heaven and earth. Jewish leaders mocked Jesus. Even brigands, true criminals, the scum of the earth, mocked Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, governors and criminals, scribes and commoners, all humanity joins in a single chorus of blasphemy. The modern world assures us that we aren't so bad, and that where we quite understandably fail, we have the resources within ourselves to put things right. Whether it is war or poverty or racial hatred or disease and disfigurement, we can fix it with a few quick twists of the dial. Scripture has no patience with such mild optimism. The cross of Jesus is the crux of human history, the deep revelation of the human condition. At this crossroads, 
the Bible uncovers the bloody corpse of a righteous man, the twisted and crucified corpse of the eternal Son of the living God. Friends, if you and I would understand ourselves rightly, we need to find ourselves in this chorus of mockery. We're not good people. We're not respectable people. We're not wise people. We have not loved God or our neighbor as we ought. But that is not where we should stay. And so let's consider secondly, Jesus is believed. Here we come to Mark's description of the end. I want us to notice three events and two results. First, three events. Darkness. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is the middle of the day, so the sixth hour is noon in their reckoning, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., This is a supernatural event, a solar eclipse of some kind that harkens back to the plagues that came upon Egypt. Remember there, the the darkness was the ninth plague. It was the plague that came right before the death of the firstborn son. Darkness pictures the judgment of God. It's fitting here that those who have rejected the light of the world should be put into darkness, but the judgment is that the darkness pictures is coming on Jesus at this point. Second event, dereliction, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words are called the cry of dereliction. Dereliction means intentional abandonment. Jesus takes the words of Psalm 22.1 on his lips here. Notice that he's not angry. He says, my God, my God. He trusts God all the way to the end. But here he expresses the agony of being forsaken. This is what he lamented in the Garden of Gethsemane when he spoke of drinking the cup of God's wrath. Later, the Apostle Paul will describe what is happening as Jesus becoming sin and becoming a curse for us. If he is to bear the punishment of God against sin, then he must be treated as one experiencing the penalty that sin deserves. So he is derelict, abandoned, forsaken. And then the third event is death itself. After some bystanders mistakenly think he's trying to call Elijah, popular belief was that Elijah would come and rescue the righteous, perhaps taking them up to heaven as he went to heaven. But then we read in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus dies. When people die, they normally do not utter a loud cry that takes a a great deal of breath. I think we should see here that Jesus chose when to expire. The divine Son of God is in control all the way to the end. So what do we have? Darkness, dereliction, death. What do we make of this? I think the message is simple and clear, though it's surprising. It should be. Human beings mock God. God should bring upon them darkness dereliction, death. Satan mocked God in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve joined in, and God said if they disobeyed, they would surely die. 
The Old Testament law says that the soul that sins shall die. The New Testament concurs that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And yet what we have here in the Son of God is a man who is reaping not what he has sown, but what you and I have sown. He is the soul that has never sinned and yet died. He did not eat from the fruit of the tree, and yet he's mocked and he dies. So in a great reversal, these three events fall on Jesus instead of us. And then there are two results. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did the death of Jesus Christ achieve? You know, you and I can and should spend our lives meditating on the answer to that question. Mark gives it to us here in one simple statement. The curtain of the temple was completely torn in two. This is the curtain that is hung to separate the the holy place in the temple from the most holy place. The smaller inner sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God would meet with his people. The high priest would go in once a year, taking blood to intercede for the sins of the people. And in that limited, protective way, sinful humans could somehow have a a partial and and a distant relationship with the God of the universe. But that curtain, that veil that was embroidered with with angels, picturing the the angel with a flaming sword that guards, guards the entrance back into the Garden of Eden, that That veil, that curtain is now torn in two. Now, where nobody could pass, the way is open. What did the cross of Jesus achieve? The way to reconciliation and relationship with God is now open through the death of Jesus Christ. It's open wide. Do you take that for granted this evening? So what should we do? Verse 39, our last verse, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Our passage began with soldiers mocking and antagonistic. It ends here with a soldier, the first one to recognize that Jesus' death validated his claims. A centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers. This was probably the soldier that presided over the whole execution the whole crucifixion. He, he witnessed everything from the beginning to the end. We don't know precisely what convinced him, what, what changed his mind. He surely had watched countless crucifixions in the past. There was something about this one. Perhaps it was the face of Jesus as he went through this suffering, as he, as he watched the suffering. He was convinced Was he melted by the compassion that he saw on the face of Jesus? This strong soldier who's used to conquest and and strength and military might, he's brought to faith by watching how this man suffered. You know, people often say that if, if God would do a miracle, then I would believe in him. Remember the Pharisees saying, come down from the cross so that we can see and believe. Is that what we need? 
display of God's glory and power? No, friend. If, if you would have faith, if you would believe in Jesus, what you need is what the centurion needed, to look on the face of Jesus Christ and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the suffering of his Son. You and I are the mockers. Of course we are. We are cruel. We are blame-shifting, blind, envious, hypocrites. We are the people who have eaten the forbidden fruit. According to the word of the Almighty, we shall surely die. It's appointed for us to die once, and then comes judgment. Outer darkness, dereliction, and death. Unless, unless God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made a way for us to be saved. And beloved, he has. If you're here this evening and you've never understood that message, if you've never understood what it would take for you to be forgiven of your sins, and to have a relationship with the Holy God, this message is for you this evening. You should turn away from your sin. Your sin has done nothing for you, and the only thing it will do for you eternally is damn you. But if you'll turn from that sin and trust in this message of the substitutionary death of the Son of God for you, then, friend, you will be saved. I hope that you'll talk to to somebody here this evening before you leave about that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this message is familiar to us. I know that. I wonder if it's lost its wonder for you. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of those who have grown weary and who have lost heart. I wonder if that describes you this evening in some way, weary, losing heart. Come take a fresh look on him who endured the cross for you, despising its shame, despising its mockery, despising its disrespect. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The hymn writer puts it this way, Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would intervene to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here you see its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded, who on him their hope have built. Let's pray together. Our Father, on this day when we remember the death of your Son, Jesus, on our behalf, our minds and hearts are filled with wonder. Why would you love us so? 
Why would you give such an incredible sacrifice? It can only be because you loved us. And I pray now that you would fill our hearts with joy and gladness and that you would cause us to walk out of here ready to walk in newness of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.